Uh, Jonah chapter 3. Uh, Jonah has just been praying in the belly of a fish and has been vomited up onto dry land. I pray for us who come to God's word. Our Father, pray that you'd come uh, to us by uh, your spirit. Lord Jesus, come to us by uh, your spirit and speak uh, to your people through your word. Pray do not be silent uh, this morning as we open and read and meditate uh, on uh, this passage in Jonah. Please be speaking uh, to us and changing our hearts. And pray that, uh, not that we might be puffed up with knowledge, or we might glory in ourselves, but that we might live for you better and glorify you better in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to read from chapter 2, verse 10. It's just a preceding verse. Uh, the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the gracious of them to the least of them. Then the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published uh, through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Uh, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. He did not do it. A few of you would have been at uh, Keystone, uh, I think two weeks ago now, uh, and at Keystone's conference for people in their 20s. Uh, Kate and I, Kate, my wife, uh, ran a seminar on evangelism. And we spent some time brainstorming why it sometimes feels like sharing the gospel uh, can be awkward. Uh, sharing the gospel can be uh, uncomfortable. And one person in, in the crowd takes up their hand and says, uh, it's because we're not always convicted it's true. It's because we're not always convicted it's true. And I think that hits closer to home and then we sometimes like to admit. It's because we're not always convicted it's true. Is sin really that bad? Is God really that angry? Is judgment really that certain the message of the gospel that uh, we are sinners that we need to repent and come to the lord jesus christ for forgiveness because there's a day coming when god will judge the earth that, that message that can just feel unbelievable can't it uh, to the culture around us it clashes it jars the world around us that we see sometimes the sun is shining not today it was this morning but the sun is shining uh, people are enjoying the barbecues this uh, summer living their lives 
England have just been in, been, been in Denmark. And the message of the gospel can feel foreign, can't it? Foreign to that. Maybe if you're not a Christian here this morning, you're, you're very welcome among us. There's a few new faces. Uh, if you're not a Christian, you, you've been attracted to the, to, to the gospel a little bit. So you, you like to think there is a God out there. Uh, but what you hear just feels so alien. It feels so like other, so unbelievable to what you look at and see in the world. So I say, you're not alone in that struggle. Christians struggle with that as well. And our passage this morning, one thing our passage this morning is doing uh, is bringing conviction to us. Bring conviction where there is unbelief and doubt in our hearts and turning it into belief. This passage, first thing it does, and the main thing we'll be thinking about this morning, this passage summons us to humble repentance. It is, in Scripture, one of the most remarkable accounts of repentance that we have. Uh, a whole city, a city which is called exceedingly evil, uh, repents and turns to the Lord. And in that, we have summoned ourselves to humble repentance. And the summons is this. Turn over or be overturned. Turn over or be overturned. Turn over to God or be overturned by God. You haven't been with us over the last few weeks. We're halfway through the book. We've done chapter one and chapter two. At the beginning of Jonah, the word of the Lord comes to him, telling him to go to Nineveh. And the beginning, the beginning is, is very similar to the beginning of chapter three. Uh, they echo each other. So the word comes to the Lord a second time in chapter three. And the word is very similar. Verse two matches chapter one, verse two. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Uh, but this time, Jonah arises. Instead of fleeing as he does in chapter one, uh, he goes to Nineveh. Uh, there's at least some change in Jonah. He has become an obedient servant. God says to him, call out the message that I tell you. And we discover what that message is uh, a little bit later in verse four. After a difficult journey to Nineveh, uh, Jonah begins to call out. And what he calls out is this, yet 40 days, verse four, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 40 days and Nineveh shall be overturned. Just eight words in the English. Uh, five words in the Hebrew, yet 40 days, Nineveh falls, you could say, and yet so rich uh, in meaning. If you've been following the news uh, recently, you might have uh, been reading about the Chaplin Towers uh, disaster, terrible, terrible thing. A block of flats in uh, Miami, which collapsed two weeks ago, killing uh, over 50 people at least. There's still over 80 missing, presumed dead, a horrific Accident, horrific event, horrific disaster. But go back to that block of towers, Chaplin Towers, two months ago, and you'll find people there happy and content. You'll find people living their lives. And the thought of disaster, well, the thought of disaster is a million miles away. But just imagine that someone, maybe an architect or an engineer, came to them two months ago and said, Yet 40 days, this building will fall. On the surface, that, that would announce, wouldn't it, that there's something seriously wrong with the building. It's about to collapse. The building's compromised. You need to get out. 
But it's more than that. It's more than that. If someone walks through your house saying the building is about to collapse, what are you going to do? Well, you're going to get out while you can. You're going to do something. And there's something similar going on here uh, in Jonah's announcement. And the Ninevites, up to this point, have been happy living in their evil ways. But Jonah comes and says, something is seriously wrong here. You are under God's judgment. Yet 40 days and it is coming. The city is compromised. It's about to collapse. And it's God's kindness that this announcement comes before the city is judged and overthrown. That he gives a delay of 40 days. So the Ninevites have time to respond. There is time, God says. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Of course, they could do nothing. The Ninevites could, they could, they could, they could stay put, not believe Jonah. People in the, in, the, in the building, when the message comes, could stay in the building, even though it's compromised. Well, they could do the only logical thing there is to do in this situation, which is turn themselves over to God. They have a choice, don't they? Either turn themselves over to the one threatening judgment or ignore him and be overturned by him. God comes to us this morning. He comes to our city this morning and says to us, you are living proudly. You're rebelling against me, the living God. And a day is coming when I will overturn you. That's humanity's problem, isn't it? We, we are proud. We exalt ourselves. We think much of ourselves and we have no place for God. We have no consideration that we are merely creatures. We have, if you like, far too higher opinion of ourselves and far too lower an opinion of God. Often we think judgment is so severe, isn't it? The judgment described in the Bible is so severe. Well, that's only because we're looking at things wrongly. We're seeing ourselves as too great and God as too small. We're proud of all the things in our lives that are really just gifts to us. And yet we have no place for the giver. In this day and age, we have things called pride parades. People marching through our streets, exalting the very things the scripture says that God condemns. So saying, if that, that's something that disturbs you, do talk to me afterwards, you don't have time to deal with it now. But, but pride parades. I am proud parades. Astonishing, isn't it? They call themselves that. We decide what is right. We decide what is good. That's what the world says. We decide what is best for us. Christian, we have no place for your God. We have no place for a creator. We have no place for someone to come and tell us what is right and wrong. Go home, God. That's the world's attitude to God. Go home, God. You're not wanted here. And God, the maker of heaven and earth, says, humble yourself or be humbled by me. Repent and turn to me. I give you a chance or I will overturn you. That is the question facing every man and woman who hears the gospel. Will you humble yourself and turn over to God? And in our passage, the Ninevites do. Verse 5, the people of Nineveh believe God. They humble themselves and turn over to God. They put on a fast and put on sackcloth. And the outstanding example of humility is this king, the king of Nineveh, the leader 
of the evil city. city. Verse 6, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. He humbles himself. He takes off his robes of glory and puts on sackcloth. He rises from his seat of power and descends into the dust. And he calls the whole city into repentance. He issues this proclamation in in verse 7. And we're forced to ask the question, does the repentance he calls for, in verses 7 through to 10, does it bear any resemblance to our repentance? Does it bear any resemblance to our attitude to God? It holds up a mirror for us. There's all sorts of things you you could say about Repentance from this passage, I mean, most obviously and clearly, uh, repentance is a double movement. If you're still living in your sin, trying to grasp God's grace but not abandoning the thing he tells you is wrong to do, that's not really repentance. Repentance is a double movement, you see there. Uh, Verse 8, that everyone turn from his evil way, turning away from evil, turning towards God, call out mightily to God, verse 8 as well. But I think there's two particular things I want us to see about repentance here. Their earnestness and their humility. Their earnestness and their humility. Their earnestness, verse 7 and 8, that neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Let, the, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Um, children, if you ever walked... Children, if you ever walk past uh, a field and the cows are mooing and making a noise, have you ever done that? Well, just imagine if you didn't feed those cows for three days. What a noise they'd be making, what a racket, what a din, bellowing and stamping. The king says, we'll not feed you, don't feed yourself, do not feed uh, the cattle. Can you imagine how the city would have been in uproar after that decree? Can you hear their earnestness? This much do we repent. That's what a fast is. That's why you fast for your sin. This much do I sorrow for my sin. This much do I call upon you, my Lord and my God, to save me. Their earnestness and their humility. Do you see in verse 9, they say, who knows? Who knows? Maybe God will turn and relent. There's no presumption in their hearts that God must be merciful to them. Sometimes we in the world have an attitude, even as Christians have an attitude that it's God's job to forgive us. He must forgive us. That's who he is. So I just need to go through my repentance, go through the steps, and he will forgive me. There's no humility in that. Who knows, they say. Of course, that the glorious good news of this passage is that when they do repent, verse 10, They find God to be merciful. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil, he relented of the disaster. They find him merciful. Now, we have to put that on the back burner because we'll we'll explore it more in chapter 4 next week. But is is earnestness and is this humility they have a mark of your repentance, a mark of your attitude to God? And that takes us back to where we started because to have this, this attitude, you have to believe that sin really is that serious. Is sin really this serious and it merits this kind of response? And the answer the scripture gives is yes, 
it is, and we have even more reason to believe it is. And that's because Christ tells us we have more reason to believe it is. In your service sheets, you should have uh, Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 to 41, which I put in there as well, where, where Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees of his day. Uh, and he refers back to Jonah. He talks about Jonah. Let me read those verses to us. Let's pick up your service sheet. Let me read those verses to us. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was, in, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Verse 41 says that Nineveh, in the judgment the day that God judges the world, will rise up and judge Jesus' generation, and by extension, all those generations after Jesus who hear of him. Why? Because something greater than Jonah is here, and of course, that is Jesus himself. Jesus said, we have more reason this side of his coming to repent than the Ninevites did. So if we don't, then they will judge us for that. That's partly because Jesus is greater as a person. He's the son of God. So his preaching would have been better and more wholehearted than Jonah's. But it's also because Jesus brings a greater sign to us than Jonah did. Verse 39 says that Jesus' generation is going to get the sign of Jonah. What is that sign? The sign is down there in 40, verse 40. The sign of Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, which corresponds to Jesus' death in the grave, where it's three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In Luke 11, which is a parallel passage to this, says that Jonah became a sign to Nineveh. Became a sign to Nineveh. Which means, I think, in the person of Jonah... In the person of Jonah, the Ninevites are confronted with the seriousness of sin. God prepares them in that way. So the Ninevites are confronted by the seriousness of sin because he is a man of God. He's a prophet. He belongs to God's treasured people. And yet he ran and disobeyed God. Saw that in chapter one. He ran and disobeyed God and was thrown to his death in the sea. In the person of Jesus, we are confronted by the seriousness of of our sin. Is my sin really that bad? Really? Or yes? Yes, it is. Why? Because to remove it, Jesus had to descend down into the grave. The beloved Son of God himself had to come down from heaven to avert God's wrath from us. He had to be nailed to a cross, suffer excruciating pain physically and spiritually. You see, we don't look inside to figure out if sin is serious. Don't even look at the world around us, figure out, figure out if sin is serious. We're very poor judges of ourselves. Now we look at the cross, we look at what it cost for God to forgive our sin. Jesus said, if you remember, Jesus said, before he went to the cross, he said this to his father. He said, Father, if it be possible, let us cup, I the cross, depart from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. I.e., if it's possible that I don't go to the cross and these people are forgiven, please do that that way. But if it's not, if it's the only way, 
than I will go. And it was. The cup didn't pass from Christ. He went to the cross. There is no other way. If sin is not that serious, the Lord Jesus would not have died. That's ultimately what will drive us to humility. That's what will drive us to earnestness in repentance. Christ says to us as he hangs on the cross, look at me. Look at me bleeding. Look at me and know that you have pierced me. This is what your sin has done. And mourn, repent for your sin. Mourn and repent. But mourn and repent assured of mercy. The Ninevites say in, back in Jonah, the Ninevites say, who knows? Who knows? Maybe God will forgive. But we can say, we know. We know God will be merciful. Why? Because Christ has died. He didn't stay dead, but he rose from the grave. My sin is paid for. I know that full well. Well, this passage summons us to convicted repentance, firstly. But secondly, and more briefly, it stirs us up to hopeful witness. It stirs us up to hopeful Witness. This is one of the greatest revivals ever recorded among one of the most ev- evil people that ever lived. The evil Nineveh is on a par uh, with some of the most brutal regimes of our day, if not worse than them. This great city, this great evil city repents, and it just gives us hope that God might do something similar in our lives, in our families, with our friends. Even in this city, this great city of Leeds. It's hope based on two things. Hope based on the power of God and on the plan of God. The power of God. Nineveh's repentance here is surprising, isn't it? So surprising. People often question it. Did it really happen? Seems so unlikely. Jonah's just a Jew. He's an enemy of Nineveh. He's someone they probably despised. His witness is pathetic. He's one man in the giant city. His alone voice and the bustling hubbub of the crowds. He doesn't even get very far into his evangelism. He gets one day out of three. Verse three. Can you imagine if Jonah came to Leeds today? Jonah arrived here in, in this city and started proclaiming a similar message. Judgment is coming. How would people respond to him? Might overlook him, he's just a voice lost in a crowd, they might laugh at him. What a crazy, ridiculous man talking nonsense. They might might lay hands on him. How dare you say that we deserve judgment? How dare you say that God is angry at us? Isn't that what we fear in our own witness when we speak of the gospel? That will be overlooked, so what's even the point? That will be laughed at leaving us ashamed. The people will attack us, bringing pain and hurt into our lives. We feel weak. Witness feels futile. And yet through Jonah's witness, God works powerfully. Verse 5, who do they believe? Well, they didn't believe Jonah. That's the point, verse 5. They believed God. It's Jonah's words that were spoken, but it's God's voice that they heard in God's hands, Jonah's words become arrows that pierce through to the hardest of hearts. God takes Jonah's weak witness, his weak words, 
and stirs up revival. It's not about clever arguments. It's not about brilliant explanations or appealing media campaigns, although those things do, do help. No, it's about God taking our weakness and working what we can never achieve, which is salvation for the many. That's his power. And then when we step back at this point in the book, we see his intent throughout this whole book, his plan, which has been to do this thing, which has been to stir up revival in this city, to bring them to earnest and humble repentance. Maybe obvious to you, but God is clearly the missionary here. He's the one saving, not Jonah. And nothing stops him, not even a, a disobedient prophet stops him reaching the city. And of course, in Christ, we know that God is reaching all the nations of the earth, that God is currently saving people from every tongue and every nation, that this is his plan. Christ has died, he has risen, and he is saving. It gives us every hope, every hope, even though we feel weak, even though we feel, feel futile, and we call people to repent and follow Christ, even though our message may feel jarring, we preach it and, and unwelcome here. We have every confidence, every reason to hope that God will be at work, that our witness is not futile and can bring salvation. As we're saying maybe this morning as we finish, God is at work in you. Maybe you've been half-hearted in your repentance and been struck by the seriousness of sin. Perhaps you never come to Christ at all. You've looked at him and seen what it cost him to pay for you. Well, come to him. He has died so that we might find the mercy of God promised here. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we are weak-hearted people, that often doubts do arise in our hearts, that even as we profess faith in Christ and confess to love him, even then we doubt sometimes, Lord. Pray, fill our vision with what it cost him uh, to pay for our sin. Give us hearts that are like the Ninevites, that are earnest and humble in their repentance. Help us to be people who come daily to Christ and seek him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.